Well, good morning, Genesis. It's good to see all of you. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Jerry, and I am the campus pastor here in Carmel, and we're excited to kick off a brand new series out of the the New Testament book of Colossians. But before we go there, I want you to think about a time in your life when you were given a really simple task to do that just didn't end up the way that you had hoped. It, It turned out to be a little more than you bargained for, right? Have you been there before? We all have, right? And I could tell you a million stories about myself that I've been there, but I want to tell you a story about my brother, Matt, right? Uh, Because I'm going to make fun of him today and not myself, okay? So um, a few years ago, several years ago, we went on vacation as a family to celebrate my parents' anniversary. And we rented a cabin in the hills of Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Beautiful place. Had a wonderful time. It was one of those vacations. It was over, well, every vacation's over way too fast. But it was like, it was over before it began. It's just like, oh man. But if you've ever rented a cabin or a condo, you know the deal on the last day, right? There's just certain things you gotta do to put the place back in order. And so we divvied up all the jobs of who was gonna do what. And, and I really can't remember what my job was but I'll never forget my, my brother, Matt, the job that he, he was given, okay? He was given this task of loading and running the dishwasher. Now, before I tell you this story, I want you to know something about my brother. My brother is one of my best friends. I just got back from vacation with him and his family. I love him. I wish I could see him all the time, right? Uh, he is smart and funny and sharp and clever. And if you know me and like me a little, you would love my brother, Matt. More than that, because my parents do, right? My parents love him more than me. I, I could tell you all kinds of stories. Right? He's just so much fun to be around. And so we all go off to do our jobs, and he's in the kitchen doing the dishes, and all of a sudden we hear, you guys, get down here now. I need your help. And I'm like, what, what is going on in the kitchen? Now we're in the hills of Tennessee, and I'm thinking maybe there's a bear or a bear cub. Like maybe he's going to die. I don't know. So we all run to the kitchen, and thankfully there were no bear or bear cubs But you know what there was? There was a dishwasher that was exploding with bubbles, exploding with bubbles. And some of you probably already know what happened, right? He loads the dishwasher and he couldn't find the little capsule of soap that you put in, so he made a compromise. He grabbed the next best thing, Dawn dish detergent, and he loaded it up and closed it up. And just in case you don't know what happens with that much Dawn dish detergent and that hot water, Kaboom. I mean, like suds everywhere. Bless his heart. He only had one job to do. One job, one simple job, Matt. That's all you got to do. Now, I really enjoy, I told him I was going to tell this story. I enjoy this because Matt has always made straight A's. I have never made straight A's. And so I can look at him and be like, how dumb are you? It's, it's one simple job. Come on, man. Uh, now, we've all been there before, right? In fact, we could all tell stories of a time that we've botched something. In fact, later today, if you want to have some fun, Get on the Google machine and type in, you only had one job. And you get to see all kinds of people's worst work on display for us to laugh at and enjoy. In fact, I've got some that I want to show you. Here's one, you know, like that's a fan and a projector. And I don't know, we don't, you know, which came first, we don't know. But come on, man, you've only got one job. They cannot coexist like that. Move the projector this way, move the fan that way. But that just isn't going to work. Like, wouldn't you like to be there the first time they flip the switch and they're like, oh, back to the drawing board, right? Uh, here's another one. Here's a really good example. That is a fortune cookie with the fortune on the outside. Like that's a spoiler alert. You don't even, you just look at it and throw it away. You don't get to eat it or anything. And the best is, what does it say? The job is well done. No, it's not. You had one job and you screwed it up, man. I mean, bad. Now this next one, before we throw this picture up, I got I to gotta tell you what was, what's going on here. There was a Chinese restaurant that moved 
okay? And a Mexican restaurant bought the Chinese restaurant and it was decorated like a Chinese restaurant. And so they thought, well, we got to go come in and paint the murals. We got to get rid of this stuff. It needs to look like a Mexican restaurant. But whoever was in charge of painting thought, well, we'll compromise. We'll cut a couple corners. And so we have painters with sombreros, right? <laughs> I mean, imagine how much money they saved on the painting budget right away. Like, you know, I guess pandas like tacos. I don't know. So now it's a lot of fun to laugh at other people's things like that, right? But we've all been there before. We, we've all been given a task or a job to do, and it should be so simple. How hard, how hard can it be? But somewhere along the way, we, we make a compromise. We, we lose our focus. We get lost in the directions. Or if you're like me, you don't read the directions. You're just kind of figuring it out. You compromise along the way, and things just don't turn out right, you know? The job doesn't get done quite right. A deadline is missed. A project gets stalled. The assignment doesn't get turned in. The check doesn't get mailed on time. Or maybe for some of us parents, you forgot to pick a kid up somewhere. You left them, right? You got to have that conversation with the police and your child, right? You didn't mean to. Just a quick compromise and things don't turn out the way, the way that you want. And, and let's be honest, it's just part of life. It's part of learning how to be a human, right? And, and just sucking it up and moving on to the next thing. But, but here's the thing. If you are like me, and I bet you are, I don't think I'm the only person that's ever been here, have you ever been tempted to compromise in your spiritual journey? When it comes to knowing God, there was a time in your life where you reoriented everything to finding your way back to God and following Jesus and living out his example. But somewhere along the way, these temptations started creeping up. These little compromises that you could make and in the way that you lived out your, your faith. And it was never overtly intentional. You never meant to do it. You never set out to do it. But you just got distracted away from God. And in, and in fairness, maybe life happened, right? Like maybe you lost a loved one unexpectedly. And it just, you don't know how to get back on your feet. And you're trying to cope with the way that you feel and the sadness and the grief. And so you're dabbling in some things that you know aren't good for you, that you're compromising, but you don't know what else to do or Maybe your career isn't going the way that you had hoped or planned. It's, it's been harder than you thought it was going to be. And so you've decided, you know, I'm going to have to make some compromises to cut some corners or maybe even cut some throats to keep up or just to try to get ahead. You went away to college and you encountered a lot of other worldviews other than the one that you're familiar with. And so you started to dabble with some of these other spiritual practices and it left you feeling really confused and, and feeling lost. Or maybe you just graduated. Or maybe you're on your own and, and you're trying to figure out, you don't want anybody to know this, but the truth is you do not know what you're doing. You don't know what you want to do with your life, and so you're just making compromises in your character and your integrity, and you're just drifting away from God. And, and you, you don't mean for it to be that way. It's just the way that life is, is playing out. Or maybe you would be really, really honest and say, you know what? I've made some intentional compromises because Jesus isn't working out for me. I've tried things his way. It's not working. I think he and I need a break. In fact, I'm just going to do things my way. And so you found yourself in a place that's just kind of weird. And you don't like where you are, but you're not really sure how to get back on track. What do you do? Well, we've all been there before, right? We've all made some compromises. We're probably tempted to compromise every day in our spiritual journey. So what are you going to do? Well, if you can relate, if you've ever felt that tension when it comes to your relationship with God and making compromises and getting back on track, I want you to know you're in really good company. 
And today as we start this series called Uncompromised in the book of Colossians, this is the whole reason this letter was written in the New Testament to this group of people. They were facing challenges just like this. And so if you want to follow along today, you can open your Bible to Colossians chapter, chapter 1. And the Bible's around the room. That's going to be on page 821. Now, Colossians is a really short letter. It's only four chapters long. Uh, it's not a book. It's actually a letter written by someone to some people. And I'm a really slow reader, but I'm telling you, even if you're a slow reader, you could probably read all through Colossians in about 10 minutes. It was written by a man that we know as the Apostle Paul, who was an early church planner and pastor. And he's writing this letter to a particular group of people in a particular city and they have been tempted to compromise their faith in Jesus. And so he's writing to encourage them. But here's the thing. Paul wrote this letter to these people just 25 to 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus, fairly early on in the life of the church. But even so, the temptations crept in, and they started to stray away from their faith. So Paul writes to encourage them to live uncompromised lives. But before we jump into Colossians chapter 1, I want to give you a, a lay of the land to know where Colossae is, the city of Colossae, and, and to know what the people are facing. So this is a map of kind of the Roman Empire and, the, and the, the New Testament churches that we have. And you'll notice like there's the city of Rome and Thessalonica. Well, these are all letters that we have in the New Testament, okay? And you'll see Colossae is kind of right there in the middle. It's located in modern day Turkey. It's about 110 miles to the east of the city of Ephesus. And that's kind of important to know because this whole region connected the east and the west of the Roman Empire. And so it was a major trade route. Now, here's why that's important. The city of Ephesus, see it there on the, on the shore? It was a port city, and it exploded in growth. It was a major, thriving, metropolitan, cosmopolitan area. But Colossae, on the other hand, had just settled in to what we would know and be familiar with as a small town, okay? So I want you to think of this as comparing to like Indianapolis to Sheridan or Pendleton. One is not better than the other, but even in hearing them, you're like, oh, well, one's huge, and it's got like a beltway around it, and the other is just kind of in an outlying area. The people aren't better or worse. It's just large and small, right? Okay, so that's really important for us to know, but here's the thing. Even though Colossae wasn't a big, wasn't, wasn't a big fancy city, Paul was writing to them, but here's something that you need to know about this, this church in Colossae. All those other churches on the map, Paul had helped to plant personally. He had been there. He had helped to start these churches but Colossae was different. That wasn't the case. He had never, as far as we know, he never visited there. He didn't really know anybody there, but he's, he's writing them, and he's writing them with a particular thing in mind. In fact, he opens this letter to let them know, hey, there's, I've heard some good things about you. Look at what he says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says this, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now listen, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people. He's never met these people. They live in the sticks, but he is writing them. This, I mean, the Apostle Paul was a rock star. People would have heard of him. They would have known he plants churches, and he's now writing this church saying, I have heard that your faith is generating a buzz throughout the Roman Empire, and he's, he's writing to encourage them. In fact, he spends the first 14 verses of chapter 1 encouraging them and thanking God for them and saying, I pray for you. But this wasn't the reason that he was writing the letter. He was actually writing to address a very serious issue because he had heard that their faith that was generating a buzz was also in danger of being compromised. 
It was, it was in danger of being diluted by a variety of other spiritual ideas and philosophies that were distracting followers of Jesus away from who Jesus was. Now, here's the deal. The city of Colossae, along with all the other cities on that map, they were part of the Roman Empire. And when it came down to religion in the Roman Empire, there were just a few basic guidelines that you would need to know. You could worship any God you wanted, any God anywhere, as long as you didn't say that your God was the only God or the best God, because that wouldn't be very tolerant, and that might lead to conflict, and the Romans wanted there to be peace in Rome, and so like many other Roman cities, Colossae probably had temples and shrines to a variety of different gods, and the goal was, hey, you find the God that works best for you, whoever makes you happy. Now, that was very real for them, but man, doesn't that sound pretty applicable to us today? We live in a world that says, hey, you can just don't, don't push it on me, right? I, I don't want to hear about all that stuff. And so you can see how this, this letter that's nearly 2,000 years old applies to us. But here's the thing. The people of Colossae, the Christians in Colossae, they were not openly rejecting Jesus. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that they had bought into a Jesus and theology where they were starting to dabble with all these other things. And so, oh yeah, Jesus, he's God, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this and I'm going to try that. And maybe this, maybe this will work for me. And they were starting to make small compromises. And Paul saw this, he heard about this, and he wanted to encourage them to stay, to stay on track. And this is so relevant for us today, isn't it? I mean, I see some of you nodding your heads. You're in situations like this. You know, you know it's okay. Most places you can talk about God. You can pray for people. You can mention Jesus. But when you really start to live it out, right, when you start to stand up for what you believe, when you try to help other people see the other side of the coin, the response isn't always very helpful, is it? Or it, it can be more hurtful. Like, well, how dare you? How, how dare you say that that's better? Your way's better than mine? Or who, who, do, you, who do you think you are to, to know and determine what's right for me? I mean, I just want to be happy. Don't you want to be happy? Why do we have to talk about this? I know a friend in my small group who got lit up recently just by having a spiritual conversation with someone that someone else started. But the fact that he was sharing his faith made a coworker unloaded on him, right? That's, that's just the world that we live in. And so if you've ever felt the pressure to compromise when it comes to growing in or living out your faith in Jesus, you are in really good company because the Christians in Colossae faced the same temptations and trials. And it's the reason that Paul was writing to them. But here's something really important that I want you to hear me say. As we read this letter over the next couple of weeks, you're going to notice Paul does not prepare them for holy war against anyone and everyone that believes differently than them. He doesn't instruct them to withdraw from society and to build up a wall around their family and their faith. Instead, he writes to equip them. And he wants to refocus them back on who Jesus is so they can live uncompromised lives in the world around them so people that are far from Jesus can come to know Jesus. And so he begins in the first 14 verses by writing to encourage and saying, oh, it's, I've heard great things about you. But then in verse 15, he turns a corner and he's like laser focused on Jesus. And here's what I want you to know. Paul's writing this letter to people he's never met in this remote area. But, but scholars would say that verses 15 through 20 of Colossians 1, they believe it to be the most theologically profound and succinct description of who Jesus is. And in doing so, Paul makes it really clear. Look, if you're looking for hope in this life, 
If you want to know how to live the life that God intends, it is not in Jesus plus or Jesus and anything. It is in Jesus and Jesus alone. So listen to what Paul says in verse 15. He says, the son, referring to Jesus, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And right away, Paul reminds them of something that we, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, we're like, yeah, I know that, right? That Paul says, look, he is the physical, visible image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus isn't one of many gods for you to consider. He is the one true God. He is the only God. He is the exact representation of God himself. If you've ever wondered what Jesus looks like, don't for, or what God looks like, don't forget, just look back to Jesus. And he keeps going, and he uses a really interesting phrase. He says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to circle or underline that word firstborn. Because if you're like me, you probably assume that it means something that it doesn't necessarily mean. The word firstborn actually means of utmost importance, okay? It refers to a person's position in regards to everyone else. When I think of firstborn, I think of I'm my parents' firstborn. My son Jude is my firstborn. That's not what this means. It means of utmost importance in comparison to everyone else. In fact, the word prototype, our English word prototype, comes from the Greek word that Paul is using here. I'm going to give you an Old Testament example to understand the point here, okay? In the Old Testament, Solomon is referred to as the firstborn of David. But if you know anything about David's family, Solomon isn't the oldest son. He's not even the oldest child. But you could argue that Solomon was the most important son because he replaced David as king when David died. He was, he was David's prototype. And in the same way, Paul is telling us that Jesus is the prototype of creation. He's the template on which the rest of creation is based. And this isn't the only place in Scripture that these kind of, this kind of language is used to describe who Jesus is. In the Gospel of John, John, who was one of Jesus' very best friends, John knew Jesus as a man before he ever declared that he was God. But when he went back and wrote his Gospel, this is what he said. In the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. John says Jesus is different. He is God in the flesh, and He has created everything. Elsewhere in Paul's writings, in Philippians 2.6, Paul writes that Jesus was in nature God. In Colossians 2.9, Paul says, In Jesus all the fullness of God's deity lives in bodily form. And the writer of Hebrews says this, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And so when Paul writes that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, he's saying, look, this isn't new information. I just want you Colossians to know who Jesus is and where he stands. And then Paul goes on in verse 16. He says, for in him all things were created. Now that word for can actually also be translated as because. Because in him all things were created. In other words, he's the firstborn over all creation because he created all things. All things were created by him, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Now, I want you to let that sink in for just a moment. What, what exactly did Jesus create? On numerous occasions, Paul says he created all things. In fact, over the next several verses, he mentions all things several different times. He is driving home the point. He is the creator 
of everything, everywhere. And then he ends verse 16 and he says this, all things have been created by him and for him. Now let that sink in. That means all things are created by him and for him. That means we do not exist for ourselves and for our own pleasure. We exist because Jesus created us and we exist because he's given us a purpose and that purpose is to bring him glory. Not for us to have fun and feel good. We are created with the purpose to glorify Jesus as God in the flesh. And then in the next verse, Paul adds to the supremacy of Jesus. He says this, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So he's before all things and now Paul's telling his friends in Colossae and he's telling us, look, Jesus is the sustainer of life. All things are held together by him. Now, if you're a science person, I am not. I'm not opposed to science. I just, my brain doesn't work that way. But if you're a science person, maybe you're thinking, okay, so does that mean that Jesus is somehow miraculously holding every molecule together everywhere so we don't just hurl off into the chaos of the cosmos? I mean, maybe it means that. I think if Jesus is who he says he is, he's totally capable of doing that. But I love how Pastor Bob Russell explains this verse. He says, he created things with a natural order and he has set in motion certain laws by which all things are governed and held together. And so what's true for the cosmos is true for our relationships and our gifts and our talents and our abilities. Jesus holds it all together. He's created relationships to work in a certain way. He's created marriage and family to function in a certain way. He's created every single one of us with gifts and talents and abilities. And when we use them, do you not feel more alive? It's part of his natural order. He holds all things together. And so if there's anything that Paul would want us to know from this, for these first few verses, when he's writing to the Colossians, I think what he is simply saying is this, look, guys, don't forget, Jesus is first. Jesus is first above anyone and everything else. He's the creator of everything. He's the template on which everything else was designed. He's the one in whom everything was made and the one who holds it all together. And for those of us that follow Jesus, we're like, well, yeah, like, tell me something I don't know. But let me ask you a question. When you sing songs to him, are you thinking about that? I struggle. Sometimes I sing the songs because they feel good. I need to remember, Jesus, you're first. You've always been first. You're never second. But Paul doesn't just stop with this idea of Jesus as first. He goes on. And in the next few verses, he reminds this church family in Colossae, he reminds all of us that make up the church, that Jesus' authority over all creation, it's not just for us to acknowledge as individuals. He reminds us and he reminds them that his authority is uniquely exhibited in and through this thing that Jesus started called the church. Listen to verses 18 through 20. He says, And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his bloodshed on the cross. Hey, Genesis family, if there's no other reason that you would reorient your life around Jesus, this is a really good reason. And it's not because he's our boss. It's because he's our master. He has done things for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Paul says he is the firstborn from among the dead. Now remember that word firstborn, it means something different, right? It talks about Jesus's position in relation to all of us. And here Paul's reminding us 
those of us that make up the church, that he's head over the church because he has done something for every single one of us that we couldn't do for ourselves. Look at verse 20. He reconciled all things to himself by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And even though Jesus has always existed, even though he's God in the flesh and all things were created by him and through him and for him, and even though he holds all things together, he did not leave us to figure out the mess of our sin on our own. He stepped into our world. And so if there's something that we could remember here, it's just simply Jesus went first. Jesus is first, but when it comes to me and you, he went first. He died in our place so that we could experience a new life in him, a new life through him, and a new life for him. And all throughout the New Testament, this thing called the church is referred to as the body of Christ. And it's made up of people like me and like you and like us, and not just here, all over the world. The church is made up of people, and we function as the hands and the feet, the mouth and the ears, the heart and the soul of Jesus. And our goal, our mission, is to take his grace and his mercy and his love into the world around us so that other people that don't know him can be brought near to him. But there's a real problem with this idea of the church that Jesus started. And it was there in Colossae, and it's here today. And, and I think the idea of the church is being compromised. It's being compromised. And sure, we gather in his name and we say, oh, Jesus is the most important. And we, we pray to him and we, we sing songs to him. But instead of being an active, thriving body that's reaching out to people that don't know Jesus, the church is being minimized to a time and a place on Sunday morning where we gather together to sip some coffee, to hang out, to sing some songs so we feel good, and then we just go home. Church is a place that we go if we're not too busy. It's a box that we check if we feel guilty or if we want to feel better about ourselves. And instead of the, fa- instead of the church being a family on mission for Jesus, you know what's happening to the church? The church is just meh for Jesus. We're just dabbling with all these other things. And I don't say this to convict you or to cond- condemn you. I think we all feel it, right? We, we see it. We see it happening. And the problem is the power of the church is in the mission that Jesus has given us to go, to tell people about Jesus, to take him into the world, not just on a Sunday morning sitting in, in rows and, and listening to somebody speak. And so maybe it's time for us to stop and start to ask some really hard and awkward questions. When you think about your relationship with Jesus and his church that he has found and, and, and invites you into, which of these two questions do you find yourself asking more? Do you ask, what can the church do for me? Or what can I do for the church? What can the church do for me? Or what can I do for the church? Now, we all know, if you're part of the church, you know the church exists to take care of one another, right? So to a degree, yes, the church can help you. But if that's the main question that you're asking, the church was never meant for consumers. It's not a place where you come and punch your card and feel good and get your fill up. That's not it at all. The church is a body that is active, that is thriving. We are to be on mission everywhere we go. We take care of one another and then we go out and we, we chase the world for Jesus. And I'm gonna be honest, I'm convicted by those questions. I look to the church that way. My, my view of church is skewed. And if that's sitting heavy on you, maybe that's a good thing. It sits heavy on me. And you know what? I think it's set heavy 
on the people in Colossae, I think they felt that tension. Remember how I told you that Paul didn't plant the church in Colossae? Well, there's something really interesting that I learned that I just personally find fascinating. So Paul didn't plant that church, but he did plant the church in Ephesus, this big, major, thriving metropolitan area. And one of his helpers is a guy named Epaphras. In fact, he's mentioned, I think, in 1 Corinthians uh, verse 7. Paul talks about this guy named Epaphras. But Epaphras helped launch this church in Ephesus. But here's what's crazy. Guess where his hometown was? It was Colossae. He was brought up in the sticks. And so after helping Paul plant this church in this major city, he got so excited, he left and he went back to the middle of nowhere and he planted a church and said, let me tell you about Jesus. And, and their faith was generating a buzz throughout the region. Now, if you have been around Genesis for a while, that idea should sound familiar to you. And just in case you're new to Genesis, I wanna let you know why that's a very important idea to us because our vision at Genesis is to become a disciple-making church. For the last five years, we've been making some pretty major shifts in how we do what we do. So we're focused on the pattern that Jesus has given us and living that out, okay? And so when we say disciple-making church, here's what we mean. We wanna be a church family that's devoted to helping people not only discover Jesus, but to learn how to follow his example to live in obedience to him, and then to teach other people to do the same. So you become a disciple of Jesus that makes disciples of Jesus that makes disciples of Jesus. And for the last 2,000 years, that's how the church has, was formed and functioned. That's how it's grown. Disciples making disciples, not inviting people to come to church, but being the church, being on mission for Jesus. And so again, I just think it's time for us to ask a really hard question. Am I, are you, are you playing church? Are you going to church? Or are we ready to be the church? And it's not that we haven't been. Don't misunderstand me. But I think we got to ask ourselves this question all the time. We are called to be a body that is reaching out. And so I want you to know there's ways that you can be the church here at Genesis. In some really simple ways. You've heard us talk about this before. But part of being the church means you build the church up. And so we have a lot of different places that you can serve on a Sunday morning. And if you've been around Genesis for a while, you're probably thinking, oh, here we go. Here's the speech. I want you to know something. Did you see all those kids that were over here? Okay. That is the future of our church. When we talk about disciples making disciples, there they are. And they sing loud and beautiful. And, and, and we need parents and we need students and we need men and we need women and we need young people and old people pouring into these kids, partnering with parents to raise them up to be the next generation so they don't say, oh, we just go to church. No, 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 no. I've watched people be the church. I understand what that looks like. And so I just, I want everybody, this message is for all of you and me, all of us. We need everyone serving somewhere. And we don't just need you to serve when it's convenient. I'm gonna raise the bar. We wanna raise the bar to every other week. Okay, we need some consistency. We have amazing people that serve with these kids, but we, it's the 80-20 rule. It might even be the 10-90 rule. 10% of people, they just show up all the time. We could call them and they would always be there. And they're robbing you of opportunities to serve. These kids need a variety of people pouring into them, okay? On a regular basis. I know it's a big ask, but it's worth it. They are worth it. We need people serving on the host team and at the welcome tent and at the cafe on Sunday mornings. 
to make this a fun and inviting place. One of my favorite things that I get to hear from people all the time. Hey, what do you like about Genesis? Oh man, they're so friendly. I just, I feel like I fit in there. Well, we all have a part to play in that, okay? There are places for you to use your gifts, your talents, and your abilities on a Sunday. So find a place to serve and commit to serving. And for those of you that serve regularly, thank you. Please hear me. I'm saying thank you. We just need consistency. If we want to grow as a church family and we don't have consistency and we're not all in on the play, we will not grow. We are just going to plateau at best. And I know that's not what you want. That's not what I want. And the goal isn't to become this, the biggest church on the planet. The goal is to be a thriving body where people come and they get connected and we're, we're shooting them out all over the place, okay? So find a place to serve with consistency. Secondly, join a group. Now, this is the worst possible time of the year to talk about groups because they're all on a break, right? It's summer and schedules are crazy. And I know some of you are meeting with your group to have some fun. Groups are the lifeblood of our church family. They're the lifeblood. And so I'm asking God for something really bold this fall. When we relaunch groups at the end of August, I have been praying and asking God, God, would you help us to launch four or five new groups? Now, when I say new groups, I'm not talking about groups that have been meeting for a while that have an open seat. I'm talking about new groups with new leaders for new people to share life together. And for a church our size, I think four or five groups, that's a, that's, that's a big ask, okay? But here's the thing. Some of you have been leading a group for a long time and you've got leaders, you're sitting on them. You need to say, hey, either one of two things is gonna happen. You're gonna lead this group and I'm gonna go or vice versa. You're gonna go and I'm gonna stay, but we need to launch new groups, men's groups and women's groups. These are places where people get to share their life together. So if you're interested, if you feel God tugging at you to lead a group, I wanna invite you to our Multiply Gathering on Saturday, August the 10th. You're gonna learn, this is, this is our training for group leaders. But beyond that, anybody that wants to be a disciple maker, you're gonna learn how Jesus made disciples. I promise you, I don't care how well you know the Bible, you will learn things about how Jesus did what he did and it's gonna catch your attention. And you're gonna, if you're like me, you're gonna say, I think I've been missing this. Join us on Saturday, August the 10th at the Multiply Workshop. Fantastic training opportunity. Now I wanna tell you about something else that's gonna happen on Saturday, August the 10th. But before I do, I gotta tell you a story, okay? When my family relocated to this area from southern Indiana two years ago, one of the things that God impressed upon me was the number of people that live right across the street here. Okay, now I'm new to this area. I know that Carmel and Westfield and Nobles, everybody's growing, but I don't know how fast we're growing. I just know, man, there's a lot of people. God's like, Jerry, look at all the people across the street. And so he, he told me to go walk across the street and just start walking in a big circle and praying. And I felt really foolish. I'm like, okay, God, here we are. We're doing our thing. Like, what's going to happen? But all of a sudden, I started to realize, holy cow. Have you ever been over there? It's huge. It's massive. It, it's endless. The number of people that live over there that either know the Lord and don't have a church home or don't know the Lord and are dying to know him, off the charts. Off the charts. And so I invited some friends to walk with me. God, would you please open a door? Would you please do something? How, how are we going to get to know these people? Okay? And then we took our staff over there, and our staff was like, holy cow, like, look at all these. And we've been praying and asking. Something really cool happened a couple weeks ago, and I've been, I've been dying to tell you guys about it. So a guy named Josh, who works at the Rose Senior Facility across the street, comes across the street, knocks on our door, comes in and says, hey, I want to introduce myself. I'm a manager over here at this new senior facility. Just want to let you know we're neighbors. 
And I heard him talking in my office, and I walked out, and I was like, hey, Josh, nice to meet you. I'm Jerry. Can I come tour your facility today? He said, sure, come on over. And so he walks me around the facility, and he's like, hey, look, it's great. It's beautiful. If you ever need any of our meeting spaces, let me know. And I said, oh, great, yeah, I've got some ideas. But then I just stopped, and I seized the opportunity. I said, hey, Josh, I just want you to know, for the last two years, we've had people praying for an opportunity to meet somebody over here that would open up a door into this community. How would you feel about partnering with us to throw a party back here so all these people could just know that we're here? You and us. And he's like, oh, I think I'd like that. And so we started dreaming up this idea, this party, this community block party where people could come, no strings attached, free food, free water, free drinks, free fun. And the goal is, hey, we're here if you need us. So I just reached out to Bar Louie last week, to Frank Sweeney, and said, hey, would you be interested? And he said, yeah, I think I am. And so a bar, a church, and a senior facility. <laughs> I, I should have set it up differently. A church and a senior facility walk into a bar, right? That would have been great. But we're all partnering together with the goal of saying, hey, neighbors, we're here. If you need food, man, go to Bar Louie. If you have senior citizens' needs, go there. But if you have spiritual needs, we're right across the church. Can you imagine what might happen? And guys, I'm telling you, God's doing this. I, that was not my idea. I'm not that good. But we've been praying. And so I kind of need to tell you, I've already committed you to be there. Saturday, August the 10th, from 11 to 2, we're going to throw a block party. The Rose Senior Facility is going to provide free food. We're going to need people to grill. We're going to need people to wrap hamburgers and hot dogs and serve food. We're going to try to work with some folks to donate water. We might need financial resources to help make it happen. We are definitely going to need people resources. We're going to need people to work at bouncy stations so kids don't get hurt. We're going to need people all over the place doing all kinds of things. But more than anything, I want you to pray. I want you to pray towards that day and say, God, would you use this event to open up doors into a community of people that are not like us? They might not even like us, but we want to go and show them the love of Jesus. We want to break into that community. And as we do that as a church family, you need to go home into your community and into your workplace and do the same thing. Throw parties with no strings attached. So after service, I'm gonna tell you how you can respond, but I want you to be praying because I think God is on the move and I think he's waiting for us to show up. And I know you guys, I know you wanna be there. I know you want in on the action, but it's gonna take all of us working together. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, Jerry, that sounds great, that sounds exciting, that sounds wonderful, but I'm busy. My schedule's full. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote at the very end. This, this verse caught my attention. When he's writing to the Colossians, he says this, He, Jesus, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Paul says, our goal in life is to chase after people and to introduce them to Jesus so they will be fully mature disciples of Jesus. And then look at what he says. This is the one that caught my attention. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Paul says, I do not have the power to do what I'm doing, but Jesus has all the power that I need. He has all the power that you need. He has all the power that we need. And if we use his power, can you imagine? Can you even imagine what could happen? So I want you to be praying and I wanna invite you, let's go on mission with him and for him and let's see what he can do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
this is exciting and it's fun to share. I know you're in the details. I have seen you work across the street. It, we, we cannot take credit for it. In fact, we just laugh and say, okay, God, we gotta show up. Holy Spirit, would you move? Would you help us to be, if people, when people think about Genesis Church, they're like, oh, that's the church where you use your gifts and your talents and your abilities to be the church. That's the church where they make disciples that make disciples and they do it all for Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you begin something new in us? Would you help us to catch onto this vision? Would you swing open the doors across the street that we would go and be neighbors without any strings attached? That you would help us to partner with Josh and Frank that, we would, that lives would be reached for you, Jesus. And if that happens through a party, great. But help us not to stop there. Help us to keep going. Jesus, would you help us to fix our eyes on who you are, the creator and the sustainer of our faith. And we just pray like the apostle Paul, would you do immeasurably more than all we could ask and all we could imagine for the glory of your great name. Jesus, we pray this in your powerful name. Amen.